Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is the most destructive fire season on record in California. Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency this past week as raging wildfires whipped by fierce Santa Ana winds enveloped Los Angeles in ways people have never seen before. And as you'll hear, California's governor criticizes President Trump with righteous passion for rejecting the science of climate change that he says is the cause. I don't think President Trump has a fear of the Lord, the fear of the wrath of God. Alexei Navalny has chosen one of the most dangerous occupations in the world, running against Vladimir Putin to be the next president of Russia. He's been arrested and attacked, but he's still attracting crowds of Russians all over the country. Why are you still alive? Uh, this is a favorite qu question of my wife. Is it, in your mind, worth your life? I think I'm ready to sacrifice everything. This is the 75th year of the Hunger Games. Donald Sutherland has been described as one of the greatest actors never to have been nominated for an Oscar. Always with the negative wave. He's been in more than 150 movies and TV shows, but still agonizes over each character he plays and is still plagued by self-consciousness about how he looks. It's not easy, Anderson. It's not easy to know that you're an ugly man in a business like I'm in. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Our country is divided between red states and blue states, 
a division that has intensified since the election of President Donald Trump. And some of the blue states are intensifying their resistance to the president, most prominently California, the country's bluest and most populous state led by Governor Jerry Brown. Brown has been governor of California twice, the first time 40 years ago. He criticizes the president on taxes. California is suing the Trump administration over health care, immigration, and air quality, but nothing raises more righteous passion in Jerry Brown than the issue of climate change. He castigates the president for denying the science and aggravating a problem Governor Brown says is causing California to burn. This is the most destructive fire season on record in California. Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency this past week as raging wildfires whipped by fierce Santa Ana winds and fueled by bone-dry brush laid waste to tens of thousands of acres in Southern California. The smoke plume that shrouded the Los Angeles area could be seen from space. The fires that ravaged California's famed wine country in October were the deadliest the state has ever seen. Whole neighborhoods were incinerated. Dozens of people were killed. The fire season used to be a few months in the summer. Now it's almost year long. These fires are unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. Scientists are telling us this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen, and we've got to deal with it. It's going to happen, he says, based on science that predicts extreme swings in weather patterns. This year, Southern California experienced record heat in October and November, creating the perfect conditions for this. Nature is not a political game. Nature is, the, is the, the ground on which we stand. It's the air in which we breathe. And the truth of the case is that there's too much carbon being emitted, that heat-trapping gases are building up, the planet is warming, and all hell's breaking loose. President Trump has famously called climate change a, a hoax. When he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, he said this wasn't a good deal for the United States. That's a preposterous idea, not even a shred of truth in that statement. So I'd say to Mr. Trump, take a deeper look. And now is not the time to undo what every country in the world is committed to. Are you fearful? Oh, yeah, you should. Anyone who isn't is not, uh, not looking at the facts. I don't think President Trump has a fear of the Lord, the fear of the wrath of God, which leads one to more humility and this is such a reckless disregard for the truth and for the existential consequences that can be unleashed. If he sounds like a Jesuit seminarian, it's because he was one years ago. Now he's a climate missionary, traveling the world, preaching the gospel of renewable energy. At the Vatican, in China, where President Xi Jinping discussed collaborating with California on cutting greenhouse gases. Brown went to the Global Climate Summit in Bonn, Germany last month. He and former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg led a delegation of mayors and legislators representing 40% of the U.S. economy. While the official U.S. delegation sent by the White House showed up to promote coal, Brown went to tell the world President Trump doesn't speak for all Americans. California is not waiting for Trump. We're not waiting for all the deniers. He's already weaning California off fossil fuels. To give us a glimpse of the future, 
Brown took us to this 62-acre solar farm near Sacramento on the site of a decommissioned nuclear power plant. You have said that you want to have 50% of California's electricity generated by renewable sources by, by 2030. And, and I think, you think you're going to beat that? Yes, no question about it. With the federal government standing down on climate action, California is blazing its own trail. What can you, the governor of one state in the United States, do to fill in the void? As governor of California, we have a cap-and-trade system, which is a very efficient way to reducing uh, greenhouse gases. We have a, a zero-emission vehicle mandate. We have efficiency standards for our buildings, for appliances. So California is showing that dealing with climate is good for the economy, not bad. California is booming. Under Brown, it has grown from the ninth largest economy in the world to the sixth. It's now bigger than France, with a budget surplus of more than $7 billion. When you first came into office this time, California faced more than $50 billion in debt and deficits. There were headlines that California was going to be the first failed state. The fact is, we cut the budget, we raised taxes, and the economy roared back. You cut the budget, you raise taxes. These days, that sounds like a prescription for political suicide. You got to pay some taxes. You have to invest. We need to invest in the technology of tomorrow or somebody else will. And that somebody is China, India, and other countries. You're not going to poor mouth yourself to the future. And roads cost money. That's called taxes. Um, R&D costs money. Colleges cost money. Uh, schools, childcare, all of that. We're a rich country, and we can handle it. But California's economic success has come at a cost. Housing prices are through the roof. So are the ranks of the homeless. A quarter of the country's homeless live in California. It's not paradise. We, we have lots of problems. Well, California is the engine of America, and I like to remind my fellow citizens, when you kind of look askance at this state, you're looking at one of the, not the only one, but a major contributor to the well-being of the whole country. California is vital to the national economy. That's why Brown is so angered by the new tax overhaul legislation being pushed by House and Senate Republicans. They call it a tax cut. But Brown says by eliminating deductions for state and local taxes, it would actually increase the tax burden on high-tax blue states like California. He and other blue state governors say the bill is retaliation against Trump's opponents. Brown called it evil and divisive. Do you think the Republicans are intentionally trying to punish the blue states that didn't vote for President Trump? I know this. The Republicans have this cult, just like they believe there's no uh, climate problem. They believe that cutting corporate taxes without any money to pay for it, they think it's magic. It'll make everything wonderful. Very irresponsible, very dangerous. But California Republicans say Brown's tax hikes are irresponsible. In Trump's America, Jerry Brown's California seems far out on the frontier. California doesn't look like the rest of the country. Minorities now are the majority of the population. It doesn't act like the rest of the country. 
the state voted to legalize recreational marijuana starting in January, will soon offer a third gender choice on driver's licenses. Hillary Clinton trounced President Trump here by more than four million votes. It seems that California is way out of step with the rest of the country. But I'd say we're more in tune with the future uh, than, than many parts of the rest of the country. So you, you think the country is going to look more like California in the future? I think it will. Because I was asking myself, why did Democrats in Ohio, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, why did they vote for Trump? Not a lot of them did, but enough to give them those states electoral votes. And but your answer? There's more confidence here. There's less fear. People are looking to the future. They're not scared. They're not going inward. They're not scapegoating. They're not blaming um, uh, Mexican immigrants. Uh, they're not blaming the stranger. Just the opposite. It's a place that's alive. It's dynamic. It's a culture that's on the move, uh, not uh, pulling up the drawbridge out of fear and, and economic insecurity. Jerry Brown is California's 39th and oldest governor. When he first held the office in 1975, he had a full head of hair. His father, Pat Brown, had been governor eight years before. When you look at all the staid portraits of his predecessors in the Capitol Rotunda, it's obvious Jerry Brown is not like the others. Not many politicians spent four years in the seminary as Brown did in the 1950s, or dated a rock star. He went out with Linda Ronstadt in the 70s. I've seen a lot of different things. I've worked with Mother Teresa. I've spent six months doing Zen meditation in Kamakura, Japan. And I've run for president three times. I've done very incompatible things. People who like you will say that that's evidence of intellectual flexibility. People who don't like you say that that's evidence of your being flighty. Well, I'm not gonna, that's that psychobabble. Whatever you call it, his far-out politics, his first time in office, earned him the moniker Governor Moonbeam. We found him to be down-to-earth. He's California casual at the office. His dog, Calusa, has the run of the place. Are you better at being governor this time? Yeah, it's a different experience. 79 is not 36. Different ball game in every way. So I would say I know more, I understand more. What have you learned about yourself? in those intervening years? There's something you lose with age, your physical prowess, uh, but mental acuity and uh, just life experience is very important. So uh, I enjoy the job a lot more. No, come on, you know that in California... It's hard to see why. His liberal policies make him a punching bag for conservatives, and he's not universally loved by liberals. He's a political maverick. He's rolling back state union pensions. He refuses to curb oil production until there's a viable alternative. A majority of Californians like what he's doing, but he's been doing this for almost 50 years, and he says it's time to hang up his political spurs. When he leaves office in January 2019, he swears he's going to leave elective politics behind. I think you're going to miss this. No, I don't. You don't think so? Next year I'll be 80. And what do I want to do with my life? That's, that's my question. What do you want to do? I want to spend time with my wife. A go-it-alone bachelor nearly all of his adult life, Jerry Brown now has a partner to share his life, Ann Gust Brown, a former executive at The Gap. 
they married in 2005. Their plan is to retire here, to this ranch in a golden valley north of Sacramento. They're building their dream ranch house, with solar panels, of course. It's off the grid and way off the beaten path. Hey, Calusa. The governor and Calusa showed us around. She's ready. All She's right. ready. This is beautiful, Governor. Yeah. This is pretty steep. Oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. He told us he's going out at his peak, stepping away from the fray on land his great-grandfather settled in the 1860s. He said he intends to be a modest rancher. He's going to unplug and unwind. Do you think this man sitting next to you is going to be content puttering around the I ranch? wouldn't call it puttering. I don't putter. <laughs> he sure doesn't putter. No. Running, as he said, running a modest ranch. We both wonder about it, because we've been running 100 miles an hour, and now we're going to be in a place that's almost the opposite of that. And we'll see. Yeah, we're out on the frontier, as it were. And you're going to like that. Well, I like being on the frontier, that's for sure. A lot's been said about Russia meddling in our 2016 presidential campaign. But the Russians are already buzzing about their presidential election next March. Because unexpectedly, Vladimir Putin has a genuine challenger, a handsome 41-year-old lawyer, Alexei Navalny, who has chosen one of the most dangerous occupations in the world, running against the man who controls the Kremlin. The election process in Russia is tightly managed by the government, but Navalny's been drawing big crowds to his protests and rallies all over the country, where he laces into Putin with no holes barred. Putin is a thief and the head of the entire corrupt system. This is one brave man, not only because he has taken on the all-powerful Vladimir Putin head-on, but because he's been holding rallies, many of them without official permits, which has had its consequences. One arrest after another. During my campaign, I spent every fifth day in the jail. So now I'm kind of, you know, used to it. Nothing new for me. It's, it's became a routine of my life. You got out of prison just a couple of days ago. Right. You held a rally right away. And you're, you're goading them. You're begging them to arrest you again. These are people who are trying to steal my country, and I strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. You're not allowed to run. I'm not allowed to run, and they put enormous pressure of our, on our headquarters and on our uh, volunteers. My uh, chief of campaign get out of jail just yesterday, so uh, all these uh, facts show us that he's really afraid, not of me, but these uh, people who are standing behind me. We have uh, now 170,000 uh, volunteers. Mr. Putin remains highly popular. It's all but a foregone conclusion that he'll be re-elected. And yet the Kremlin is doing everything it can to make it difficult for Navalny to gain traction. For instance, the government says he can't be on the ballot because he was found guilty of embezzlement and what Navalny insists was a trumped-up charge. And he's barred from national television. 
but he's managed to get around that by reaching an ever-widening audience on social media channels and YouTube, where he has millions of followers and says he's raised almost $4 million from ordinary Russians. What do you think the biggest issue is for most people here in Russia? Poverty and inequality huge in Russia, even compared to the United States, the European country. No opportunities at all, no future for the people. Putin is stealing their future. And Mr. Putin puts his relatives, his closest friends, his colleagues from the KGB at the chiefs of this company. And that's why they're controlling the whole economy. Navalny began his public life 10 years ago in a shrewd way. He bought small shares of state-owned companies. As a shareholder, he was able to get his hands on internal financial documents, investigated evidence of misconduct, and posted it all on a blog. Did these documents that you got prove corruption? Oh, absolutely. I work as a whistleblower, and I'm not afraid to uh, announce the names. He says he found that the Kremlin's inner circle was accumulating vast amounts of wealth and published pictures of multiple homes and yachts. He moved on to airing documentaries on YouTube with video of the official's lavish lifestyle. How did you get the footage? Uh, we have our Air Force. Uh, we, we're just what using drones. Uh, you uh, sent drones out? Yes, we do a lot of work with the drones because from, for us it's a best way to show this way of life. When you publish this footage of the yachts, of these palaces, of these real estates, and you, uh, you can show documents, look, this guy have a relatively modest salary, but look at this house. His most watched documentary, with over 25 million views, focused on Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev and his estates. Navalny says all five of them. The video inflamed so much outrage that in March, tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets. When Navalny called for a second round of protests three months later, he was arrested before he even left his apartment building. But his supporters came out in droves all across the country. And like Navalny, close to 1,700 were arrested. These were the first protests of this magnitude in Russia in six years. Back then, in 2011, roughly 60,000 went to the streets in a burst of anti-Putin dissent. That's when Navalny debuted in Moscow as an opposition leader. As we were watching in the United States, I think there was the impression that public opinion was going to force change here. It looked that way on television. But that is not what happened. Mr. Putin realized that his, uh, it's not affordable for his system to give people more democracy. That's why in the uh, 2012, he completely changed his strategy and uh, start to arrest people, start, start to fabricate criminal cases. Look, in the uh, start of the 2011, I was a respectful lawyer. At the end of the 2012, I was several time convict. But now he's seen as the last man standing, since most of the other opposition leaders either fled the country or were found dead under mysterious circumstances. Why are you still alive? Uh, this is a favorite qu question of my wife. 
I don't know. Maybe they missed uh, the uh, good timing for it when I was less famous. Do you feel that your visibility, with so many people knowing who you are, um, that that's protecting you? Well, actually, I'm trying not to uh, thinking about it uh, a lot because if you start to think uh, what kind of risks I have, uh, you cannot do anything. Вам нужен такой президент? Navalny's platform includes more spending on education and health, restoring a free press, and taxing the oligarchs. In the West, he's assumed to be a Russian liberal. But there was a time when he marched with nationalists, some of them fascists, something he's tried to downplay lately. You have attended nationalist, what we would call right-wing rallies, uh, I believe in support of ethnic purity. Russian ethnic purity. Have you supported that? Uh, of course not. I uh, was part of these uh, rallies because I support the freedom of rallies, because I uh, support uh, freedom for meetings. Oh, they're supporters of yours. Uh, they're part a lot of, of your them. following. A lot of them supports me and they recognize me as a leader. When he was growing up, he came from a committed communist family in a small town south of Moscow. What was your childhood like? I'm 41 years old. It means that actually I'm a guy from the Soviet Union. Huh? I was a young pioneer. I had my red tie. My father was a military. And I was very proud that my father is guarding Mother Russia from evil Americans with their bombs and missiles. Actually, my biggest memory that I'm as a child standing in line standing in line maybe sometimes for hours to just buy milk. He was close to his brother Oleg, seven years younger. So it was painful for him when three years ago, the government, to get him to stop his activism, he believes, convicted him and Oleg of embezzlement, a ruling the European Court of Human Rights called arbitrary and unfair. To make matters worse, he got a suspended sentence but Oleg is still behind bars. He's still in prison and he spent uh, two years in the solitary confinement, which is uh, actually in Russian condition is torturing. And you think he's in jail to get you, to get you to stop? Yes, absolutely. But he hasn't stopped, even though he's been physically attacked. While campaigning in Siberia, he was splashed in the face with green dye. It was painful, but I could... Uh, it hurt. It, it hurt. But he handled it with humor, saying he was Shrek. His followers dyed their own faces green and posted photos to Instagram and Twitter in solidarity. Then he was splashed again. Second time was much more painful. There was acid as I understand it. My uh, doctor in the hospital said, well, Alexei, you should be prepared that you will be blind for one eye. And so I even start to think about kind of, you know, I will be such kind of pirate with a... With a patch. With a patch. The Kremlin did allow him to travel to Spain for specialized surgery. But immediately after the treatment, he returned to Moscow and went right out campaigning again. Lately, he's been concentrating on rural areas, holding rallies far from the big cities in places like Siberia, 
and the Urals. I'm traveling every weekend to spend Friday, Saturday and Sunday in the regions to have these rallies. On our last day there, we went with him to the mid-sized industrial city of Ivanova, four hours outside Moscow, starting with a train ride. Mr. Putin never ever mentioned your name. May criticize you, but never your name. What do you make of that? I have no idea why they're doing it. Maybe it's a kind of something uh, superstitious for them. Like, you know, you, you, you cannot name the animal because if you name it in the night, it will come and eat you or something like this. And they have a lot of nicknames and euphemism for me, like uh, this gentleman, uh, this guy, this convict, and this, uh, this convict. Uh, this convict. Uh, but uh, they are thinking about me. And believe me, they are afraid of me, afraid of us. So it's, uh, that is much more important for us than mentioning my name. It was snowing and dark out when we got to a wooded lot on the edge of town where a big crowd of mostly young Russians was waiting. No one thinks he has much of a chance of beating Putin in the election. But still, Putin fears him, Navalny says, because of his ability to draw crowds at rallies and into the streets. He perseveres, knowing what he's doing is dangerous. His supporters have been roughed up by police and pro-Kremlin activists who Navalny calls thugs. Is it, in your mind, worth your life? Because there is a big target on you, no question. Uh, I'm trying to not to think about it. Because, look, I think I'm ready to sacrifice everything uh, for my job and for the people who are surrounding me. I'm not letting them down. And I'm trying to not to reflect about it all the time. Donald Sutherland has been called one of the greatest actors never to be nominated for an Oscar. He's appeared in more than 150 films and TV shows, MASH, Clute, Ordinary People, The Hunger Games, just to name a few. You may recognize his name, you've definitely seen his face, but you probably don't know much about Donald Sutherland, the man. At 82, he's still one of the hardest working actors around. He's still agonizing over each character he plays and still plagued by self-consciousness about how he looks. He's never forgotten what happened after his very first film audition more than 50 years ago, when the writer, director, and producer of the movie he tried out for called him on the phone. The writer said, you did such a terrific job. And the producer said, we thought you were really wonderful. And we all wanted to call you together to explain to you why we weren't casting you. <laughs> and they said, no, 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 I mean, we have to, the reason why we're not casting you is because we've always thought of this fella as a kind of a, a guy next door sort of guy. And to be absolutely truthful, we don't think you look like you ever lived next door to anybody. <laughs> I mean, but it's the story of my life, you know? Uh, That's the story of your well, life. Yeah. Who is it? Donald Sutherland may not look like the guy next door. I'm an investigator. I'd like to ask you some questions. But that hasn't stopped him from carving out one of the longest-lasting and most unconventional careers in the film business. He's played leading men. I guess the whole of life's nothing but an accident, is it? What happens to you? And all manner of misfits. He's turned up in Army field hospitals. Scratch my nose. 
just don't. There. Little harder, please. English country estates. I could not have parted with you, my Lizzie. To anyone less worthy. And the toniest corners of Upper Manhattan. Money! This is the 75th year of the Hunger Games. He's had a particular soft spot for bad guys. Did your mother make these? And over the years, he's played a lot of them. Don't lie. You promised. A lot of the roles you take on, though, are not always sympathetic. They're not sympathetic to you, but they're sympathetic to me. They are. But yeah, sometimes they don't feel very good about what they've done. Even if it's a pyromaniac in Backdraft? (laughs) (laughs) Your eyes light up like a pyromaniac right now. Sorry, (laughs) but I mean, he, he was so excited, you know? Got the whole place going like hell. My hair was on fire, my hands, everything. I was dead. To prepare for these roles, he spends months immersing himself in the script, poring over the parts as he conjures the characters to life. You try to find something in the role that... I don't find it. It finds me. I mean, I will read it, and suddenly it starts churning around inside me, and then it gets violent, and then it gets loving, and then it's it's an extraordinary thing. It gets more and more and more exciting. It's delicious. It's what it is. It is. When we first met Sutherland, he was shooting a scene in Italy for an upcoming FX series called Trust about oil magnate J. Paul Getty. When he's filming, Sutherland says he needs more than anything else an intimate, creative relationship with his director. He describes his experience working with the legendary Italian director Federico Fellini as a love affair. Why do you see it in romantic terms? Because it is. Uh, There's that intimacy. Yeah. And sometimes it's rejected, and sometimes it's accepted and embraced. And when the film is done, the affair is over. It's gone. Do you have a cigarette after? (laughs) No, but you have regret. If there's a slight sadness about Sutherland, it may be because his childhood in Canada wasn't easy. He survived polio as a toddler and spent all of fourth grade at home with rheumatic fever. He was an awkward kid, tall with big ears. At school, they called him Dumbo. When he was 16, he had a question for his mother. And I went to her and I said, Mother, am I good looking? And my mother looked at me and went, Your face has character, Donald. And I went and hid in my room for at least a day. Did what she say stayed with you? Uh, not really, just, just for uh, 65, 66 years. <laughs> it's not easy, Anderson. It's not easy uh, to know that you're an, an ugly man in a business like I'm in. Do you think of yourself as an ugly man? Unattractive, is a gentler way of putting it. His insecurities didn't stop him from acting in plays in college. In the early 1960s, he started picking up work in television and B-movies, like Castle of the Living Dead. He'd be forgiven if you've never heard of it. That's Sutherland playing the part of a soldier and a witch in the same scene. You all right? The early years were a struggle. Sutherland had twins, including his son Kiefer, 
then three more children with his wife of 45 years, the actress Francine Rossette. His big break came in the Dirty Dozen, and it happened entirely by chance. <laughs> Sutherland only had a bit part until one of the lead actors told the film's director, Bob Aldridge, he didn't want to appear in this scene. And Bob Aldridge looked at him like that. Then he went, you with the big ears, you do it. <laughs> I don't think he knew my name, but I, I, you know, it changed my life. Where are you from, son? Madison City, Missouri, sir. Never heard of it. Hollywood producers saw star power in that brief role. He was offered a lead in MASH. Then played a hippie tank commander in Kelly's Heroes, earning a place in Hollywood as an oddball icon of the early 70s counterculture. There you go, more negative waves. Have a little faith, baby. As his career took off, something happened that Sutherland still doesn't quite believe. The guy who grew up thinking he was ugly became a sex symbol. Now tell me about Frank Liguren. In 1971, he played the enigmatic private detective in the hit Clute. When did you break up? Alongside his then-girlfriend, Jane Fonda. Would you mind not doing that? Fonda won an Oscar for her performance. Sutherland wasn't nominated. Okay. We were surprised to learn Sutherland's never watched Clute all the way through. And he says he rarely sees any of the movies he stars in. His main interest, he says, is his performance. How the film ends up being put together is out of his hands. One of the nice things about the job I'm doing is I have a fair amount of control over the finished product. You do? Yeah, and that's not something as an actor you have much control over. Excuse me, you used the wrong word. You used the word much. The operative word is any. You have no control over it? None. None except in performance. That may be a polite way of saying, if the film is a clunker, don't blame Sutherland. One critic about a television show you were in said, the question is not just what a class actor like Sutherland is doing in trash like this, but whether Sutherland is actually in a different show entirely. What was the show? Dirty Sexy Money. Oh, excuse me. That's not trash. That was a really, really good show. Oh, I'm offended. It's such an extravagant accusation to make. Is that something you ended up watching? Huh? Did you watch it? I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but... Uh, what do you mean? You didn't, you didn't see it? No. So how do you know it was good? Because I was in it. <laughs> I don't mean it was good because I was in it. Right. I mean, I, because doing it, you knew it was good, and you knew from the response of people on the street. We were speaking with Sutherland at his lakeside estate in southern Quebec, where he steals time between film shoots. In an old pump house by the water... I have vertigo, and I'm climbing that goddamn thing. He set up a makeshift screening room to watch some of his most iconic performances. It quickly became clear to us that decades after he's finished a film, the character he's created stays with him. In this scene from the 1973 thriller Don't Look Now, his character discovers his daughter's body in a pond. <laughs> Uh, this is going to be a hard day for me. Um, so even now, the character comes back to you. The character's still there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I never thought of that. 
they must all have their little niche somewhere in my, in my person or in my soul or something. Yeah, yeah. Sutherland insists he's never given much thought to the trajectory of his own career or viewed it as a climb to stardom. A lot of actors, they want to take on roles where they're... Because they're vertically organized. What does that mean? It's actors who say, okay, I've done this as a correct character to play, to do this, to do this. To kind of have a career ladder. Yeah. I've done a dramatic role, now I'm going to do a comedic role in this sort of romantic lead. Yeah. And mine is like a great big wooden platter of fruit and pasta and chicken salad and the soup and uh, a banana, you know. It's a whole bunch of different things. You might not like everything on the thing, but you can go and grab something and peel it and eat it and like it. That may explain, in part, why Sutherland has never gotten an Oscar nomination. That and his style of acting, which is subtle and restrained, never showy. The 1980 film Ordinary People won Best Picture, Best Director, and an Oscar for the screenplay. Because I don't know if I love you anymore. And I don't know what I'm going to do without that. Come on, give me the camera. Dad, give me the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? Mary Tyler Moore was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Ordinary People. Until I get a picture of it. Timothy Hutton won one. Give me the goddamn camera! Sutherland was ignored. Now, at a stage in life when peers half his age are slowing down, Sutherland seems to be speeding up. After shooting one week in Italy, we met him again on a soundstage in Los Angeles where he was filming scenes for an upcoming science fiction movie. Next month, he has a new film coming out, The Leisure Seeker. Let me make you a cup of coffee. In which he plays an aging professor alongside Helen Mirren, who embarks on a road trip as he grapples with old age and dementia. John, what's happening? Where are we? He was maybe the nicest man I've ever played who was losing his mind and totally and utterly in love with his wife. It's very bittersweet about things slipping away, about love and aging. Did it resonate? What do you think, Anderson? <laughs> Just look at me. Uh, sure, you know, all of it, every bit of it. Are we there yet? Almost. We won't know until January if Donald Sutherland will get an Oscar nomination for The Leisure Seeker. But last month, he finally got that little golden statue which has eluded him so long. A Lifetime Achievement Award, presented to him by his Hunger Games co-star, Jennifer Lawrence, in a special ceremony in Hollywood. His family, almost all of whom are in the film business, was there to cheer him on. I finally found peace in the words of the great Benjamin Kulbelski, who is also known as Jack Benny, when he said, as I say to you now, I don't deserve this. But I have arthritis, and I don't deserve that either. (laughs) Thank you. Donald Sutherland says he left this interview with an utter sense of failure. No, I don't view this as a failure. I view me as a failure in it. Go to 60minutesovertime.com, sponsored by Prevnar 13. Fifty seasons of 60 Minutes. 
This week, a look back at the second Sunday of December, 1986. That's when Mike Wallace first interviewed Oprah Winfrey. Her local Chicago talk show was about to expand into national syndication. Mike was skeptical, but Oprah was confident. It's going to do, it'll do well. And if it doesn't? And if it doesn't, I will still do well. I will do well because I'm not defined by a show. You know, I think we are defined by the way we treat ourselves and the way we treat other people. You know, I would be wonderful to be, you know, acclaimed as this, you know, talk show host who's made it. That would be wonderful. But if that doesn't happen, there are, you know, other important things in my life. 31 years and many successes later, she joined us on this broadcast as a correspondent. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. And tomorrow on CBS This Morning, Nora O'Donnell investigates allegations of sexual assault at the Air Force Academy. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.